Well, good evening. We are um, in the book of Ephesians in chapter 1 and uh, doing uh, verse 4 and verse 5 tonight. Uh, kind of continue on uh, from where we left off last week. We are in a supremely glorious passage. It's like we're going up the mountain and stopping and seeing a splendid view. And uh, just when we think we have uh, the best view we've ever seen, then we find out that there is more. And then just it continues with just much more wonderful, glorious things uh, that we uh, look at here. We are uh, face-to-face with the most astounding thing that the Almighty God has planned and done for us. If uh, this passage in verse 4 and 5 of Ephesians 1 doesn't excite us and make us delighted, we might ought to question ourselves if we are children of God. We're going to turn our uh, Bibles to uh, verse 4. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. Quite a rich passage that we have the privilege of looking at tonight. Couldn't be in a better place. And uh, we are taking our time with this text because it demands our special attention. Uh, The phrase that we're dealing with tonight is before the foundation of the world, and uh, then we'll continue on from there uh, after leaving off with chosen. In uh, this text and in this particular phrase, we find in other places in Scripture, it's not the only place uh, as in Ephesians, we will also see it in 1 Peter 1.20, dealing with before the foundation of the world. In uh, 1 Peter 1.20, it says, speaking about Christ, He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through Him believe in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory, that your faith and hope are in God. Now, in verse 20, it says he was foreordained before the foundation of the world. God already had a plan. And so, this plan was to go about before um, the world was created. It was a pre-temporal time. Staying in that same area, if we were to turn back maybe to uh, 2 Timothy, thinking of the same thought for the foundation... 2 Timothy 1.9 Talking about the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling not according to our works but according to His own purpose and grace which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Once again, it's dealing with uh, before the creation of the world. So we see this uh, phrase brought out by not only Peter and, of course, Paul in the Ephesians text, but we see uh, it written by John, who in the book of Revelation, in 
chapter 13, verse 8, talks about uh, a book that was written, which was before time also, which, and it says, All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. These are people on the earth who would be worshiping the Antichrist, and their names will not be found in the book of life, which was actually from the foundation of the world. Also in Revelation, chapter 17 and in verse 8, same kind of context again. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. So there again, foundation of the world, these are people who are not believers, who are not found in that book that was written before creation. One other text would be found in Matthew 25 when um, Christ comes back to the earth and you have the great white throne. Actually, it's not the great white throne judgment, but it is the sheep and goat judgment. And uh, we find out in verse 34, it's speaking the same thing. Here it says, Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. There we have a kingdom, and it's prepared from before creation. So we have something here that uh, stays consistent. It's not uh, mentioned uh, as in only one single time, but several times throughout Scripture. To look at that word foundation, it's a katabale, in the Greek anyway, which uh, means to throw down. Kata is down, bale is to throw, to throw down. That's the act of God throwing down a universe into space. Uh, where he uh, speaks a material universe into existence. So God laid down a foundation. He spoke it into uh, creation. And then we also see the world, the foundation of the world. The world is cosmos. We get our word uh, cosmology or cosmetics, which is dealing with arrangement, order. People have heard of the cosmos, the world, but it's uh, coming from that Greek word. Uh, which means an arrangement, an order that God had made. So he, before he laid down this world, this arrangement, this order, we were chosen in eternity before the universe was ever even created. So first, election is temporal, uh, pre-temporal. It was before the foundation. Uh, we see that God the Father chose us in Christ according to Second uh, Timothy, um, which we had uh, read earlier. And also in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. We get something that just stays consistent with what we have been talking about. So it is not some strange doctrine but it is something very biblical. 
And it says in Second Thessalonians, But we are bound to give thanks to God, always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So, before the creation, again, you have a beginning. Uh, from the beginning, even before that, God had chosen His people for salvation. So, what we are emphasizing here is that the very divine decision concerning the destiny of human beings is wholly unaffected by human deeds, entirely unaffected by what humans would do. To say that God chose us before the existence of all created things is to say, actually, that He chose us without regard to any created thing. He did not wait for them to respond, but He simply chose them for what He wanted to do out of His love. If you remember in Romans 9, it talks of Jacob and Esau, brothers who were um, born in time and space, but we know that God had chosen Jacob and not Esau before this foundation. And that was quite an event in human history. Uh, it antedates all of human history, actually. God's choice is not dependent on any human merit or temporal circumstances. Uh, he is not dependent upon what uh, man was going to do. Uh, he simply did it before we ever existed and without any of our consent. He didn't wait for our own agreeing with uh, what he was doing was right or wrong, but um, he had an ele elective decree. So what we see unfolding in this whole time-space history is a very progressive fulfillment of a purpose, a divine purpose, and it was conceived in eternity past. And uh, when we see it in time and space, we look at uh, Calvary. We see Jesus there and uh, his sufferings and his death. And that was designed to accomplish the salvation that God had already planned. Um, he had already made that. And then whenever the time came, Christ accomplished that matter. And so it takes the uh, faith of individual men and women to, um, to be a part of the family of God. But of course, it's not the beginning. It's not the cause. It's not the foundation of their election just because they have faith. But it's fruit. The faith is the fruit. Faith is a, is a gift from God so that we will believe Him. All who are, were appointed to believe in Him at the time the Gospel was preached in Acts 13.48, all who were appointed believed. Um, very profound. So it comes down to one of two things. It's either a person thanks himself for his faith and also God, but at the same time he realizes that he did something. He had faith. Or he thanks God for his election. And it's all 100% of God's work. It resulted in his faith. Um, God gave that faith. Now there's a reason that one is chosen before the foundation of the world. And it's that we should be holy and without blame 
as it says in verse 4, that we be holy. This is a, it's a design, and then it's immediate design, but it's not the chief design. It is a very important design. God wanted us holy. It's like a, a design of a building. And when one builds one, let's say if we're building a house, uh, one has a purpose, they have a design to do. But it's not the ultimate design, for the ultimate design would be that one would be able to abide, to dwell in that house. Having all the conveniences of that building, that dwelling, we see that here in this Ephesian text that God is the highest end. The very glory of God is what this is about. It's for the pleasure of His will. Our sanctification is very, very important. That's part of the plan. And the reason that we were chosen was that we'd be holy and without blame. But it's still subordinate to the fact that the glory of God is the highest end. So we want to uh, see ourselves as being made uh, holy. We are holy now. We will be perfectly holy at the time that we're glorified. Uh, right now, it's a state of inward purity. It's a positive sense. There is light. There is something that has been set apart. We were chosen to be set apart, to have light. And that's the positive aspect. The uh, negative aspect is without blame. The without means that there we there is something that is absent. That is sin. Sin is absent. Darkness is absent. We have the light, uh, the purity, holiness. So there's the negative sense. Um, no darkness at all. Nothing to, uh, that anybody could blame without blame. And you have to think later on in this book of Ephesians where you have a great picture of Christ and his church of uh, husband and wife. And that is being used in verse 27 to picture what this is all pointing to, talking about uh, the husband, uh, and then being a picture of what Christ did for the church, says that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So a wife is to be holy and without blemish. Her husband is to take care of her, sanctify her, cleanse her. Christ is making us holy and without blemish. Ultimately, that's the way that we will be. Um, we, are, we are holy now. All that God is, we become in Christ Jesus. We have the very righteousness of Christ. So in the position we are found in perfect righteousness... Not uh, of any of our works, but of course because of Christ. We have a practice that does fall short. We do sin while we're in these bodies. But there's a position, and the position can never fall short. Because it's exactly the same position that Christ has. Now, on, on the other hand, as we live in this life, we should desire to live holy. We want blameless lives. We want to be um, complete. And, and we are complete. We stand in perfect righteousness. And one day there will be a, a perfect uh, righteousness, a perfect holiness. 
And so, in either view, the fact remains itself that if our personal holiness and blamelessness uh, are the goal or end for which we're chosen, they cannot be the ground or the cause of our election. It cannot be the case that God foreknew any degree of holiness or blamelessness in us, and on that basis He chose us in His Son. It's uh, not that He looked at us and saw that we... Uh, we're going to be holy in our own ways. It was for the fact that uh, He chose us and then He makes us holy. Now, if this uh, verse that we see uh, should uh, stand out, it should really wreak havoc with all forms of Pelagianism, all forms of Arminianism, for the fact that it wasn't because we were holy and without blame, but that's what He is doing with us, and that's why He chose us to, to be that way. The next phrase, as we look at holy and without blame, is before Him. That's before God. We'd stand before Him. It's actually uh, dealing with the very presence of God. As we are in the presence of God, in, in a communion, a fellowship with Him. The purpose of our calling and election is that there, we would walk with God and not only that we would enter into a uh, conscious fellowship with God, but that we would be able to walk, to abide, to dwell in that fellowship. Walking in the light of God. Uh, back in Genesis 17, we see a covenant made uh, with Abraham. And God was actually inviting him to walk before him and be perfect. Take a walk with me, Abraham. Enoch, in Genesis, walked with God. And in Amos 3.3, it says, Can two walk together unless they be agreed? If we are in communion God with God, we are agreeing with God. We are walking with God. We're being perfectly joined together with God. The next phrase, then, is in love. Now, the sense here is which way are we going to read this? Different translations will read differently. The in love can be connected with God and His love, or it can be connected as in uh, the King James, New King James Version, where it, it speaks about holding without blame before Him in love, and that would be uh, considered us, um, attached to this holy and without blame. Um, John Calvin, Martin Lloyd-Jones would prefer connecting it with the uh, latter part of the verse as the perfection of believers consisting in love. Uh, they have the evidence of obedience, holiness, without blame. And as they stand before God, they are there loving Him because the essence of holiness actually is love. Romans 13.10, we see the fulfillment of the law, the law of royal love, loving God, loving our neighbor. And we can only conceive of holiness, true holiness, when we conceive of it in the terms of love. The great thing then for us, is that we would appear before God in love. And of course, that text can take, be taken two ways. Um, God, we know, in love, would predestine us, would uh, 
desire to make us holy, uh, adopt us. Um, that's one translation or the other, and that's perfectly true because he loves uh, us. We love him because he first loved us. Uh, here it could very possibly mean that, though, in the love that we have, have we stand before him in our uh, holiness that he's done with us. That's the, the, there's a great effect uh, of the fall being undone here. We know that man's nature is an exact opposite of holiness. If we're Christians, we are lovers of God. We delight in Him. We have a new nature. We now love Him. Uh, a man may be very moral, but he doesn't love holiness. He doesn't love God. He's not really being set apart. He may look good, uh, but here we see that holiness is positive. It's essentially a matter of loving God. A Christian is one who loves holiness. He appears before God because he is holy in love. So the law of God calls us to love. And so as we would uh, look at this verse, that's the position that we, we stand in. So the ultimate end of God's choice, his choosing as it is in verse 4 there, election, is that we become people of that kind of character. People that are holy, without blame, standing in love before God. He wants us to be absolutely perfect. And that will happen. There will be a time uh, where we are glorified. And of course, it already has started. The seed has been planted. It's like an embryo. We were... Uh, not chosen just to be forgiven, not chosen just to be justified. We were chosen to be absolutely perfect in His presence, before Him, standing before Him in a perfect way. And so to be saved is to be rightly related to God, being holy. And that's the message that we have for mankind that is lost. We should be telling men what sin has done, why they are the way they are, uh, what has happened to them, who they are, how they're separated from God. We need to tell them what they need. Tell them that they need to be right before God. They need to be holy. So um, we stand before Him and we realize that blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who are pure, holy, for they will inherit the kingdom of God. So, standing before this great God in love, we see that that's what He wants us to do, to be perfectly blameless. And that moves us into verse 5 now, and it sets it up. And what this verse does, it makes us recall what has gone before. And we can stand before God, in love, but it, it doesn't stop there. This great view that we have been given in this text continues, and we're going into something even more supremely glorious. We keep climbing up this grand mountain overlooking just unbelievable sights. And just when we think we have seen the ultimate, there is more. 
And it's almost like, I can't hardly take it anymore. This is so astounding uh, enough. It's, it's, it's too much. I cannot get a grip on all of it. Not only do we stand before God, we stand before Him as adopted sons. We have to be staggered by this tremendous view of God's glory. We gaze at these truths and we don't just want to make a momentary glance, just a a look and, and then move on. We want to ponder on them and continue to let them penetrate into our hearts. We uh, cannot just idly walk on by and not pay attention to what's there. John Calvin said that the mercy of God is nowhere acknowledged in more elevated language. This passage demands our careful attention. So that's why we're spending so much time in this area, just precious, valuable treasures in this text. Uh, It says in verse 5, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. Just taking that phrase, it's uh, just full of uh, beautiful treasures. He speaks of predestined. It's different from the word that is in verse 4, where it speaks of chose, he chose us, eklektos. Leo, in this verse, the word is praharizo. And so Paul is not really repeating himself here. He's saying something to to support verse 4, but he's also saying something different. Praharizo means to determine beforehand, to declare beforehand, means to predetermine, to mark out the boundary or limits beforehand, to determine a destiny. It's a decree, and it's before the realization of the object. It's a thought-out plan, and it's been purposed in the mind of God. Now, this is dealing with God's ultimate plan. So when we see the word praharizo, uh, predestined, uh, it is His plan. Now, there's a difference between chosen and predestined, as we see. Chosen is going to emphasize the execution of the plan. It's a a means or it's a method, it's a mode. The plan has to be put into operation, and it has already been accomplished. And that was, uh, in the sense, we have predestined, and then we think of chosen. Not that we can... uh, put that in order uh, the way that that God would do it in an eternal way but yet the best way for us as humans to view this is that he planned it and then he did the executing of it in electing and then of course eventually Christ fulfilled that at the cross this word predestined is seen in other places in uh, the New Testament and sometimes it's used as the word foreordained to ordain something beforehand. It's the same thing. Uh, and it's sometimes used of God as determining from eternity. Matter of fact, in the New Testament, it's always used of God as determining from eternity. Um, sometimes with the phrase, it's before the age. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7, 
we get that word for ordain. Again, though, it's the same as praharizo. In 2.7 it says, But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. Powerful verse there, but the phrase that we're concentrating on is uh, ordained before the ages. Of course, we've, we've been looking for the foundation, and this is before the ages, before the world. In Acts 4.28, we uh, have a prayer, and they're praying to God, and we pick it up in verse 27. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Uh, there's God's purpose, and it was determined before. Predetermined foreordained, if you may, that that is used. One of the greatest places where this word is used is found in Romans 8, verse 29. And that is where the golden chain of redemption is found. Just an awesome passage dealing with what God had done and His purpose. Verse 29 says, For whom He foreknew, those who he had a relationship with beforehand, before they were created, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. The word there, predestined, is that word, again, that would be foreordained. It's that word that he predetermined to declare beforehand. So we see it not only in Ephesians, we see it in Corinthians, we see it in Acts, we see it in Romans. And all of this, God did in Himself. It was Him, not anything outside of Himself. God did not seek a cause outside of Himself, but He predestined us because such was His will. It was for His own pleasure. It was for His own satisfaction. And it wasn't because he owed it to somebody because he saw that they were going to accept him. It was out of his own will. So he previously marked out us with a view to placing us as adult sons for himself. This is where it really gets very um, just so pleasing to be able to read where we see that He has a plan for us. He lavishes His love on us. He gives us the highest privilege of sonship, great fellowship with Him, that He would be glorified. He uh, saves us. He's glorified. He is worshipped by us. He's served by us. All in this plan. I think it's staggering. It's incredible. It's saying before the foundation of the world, it was God's plan, it was God's purpose that certain members of this fallen race from Adam who had fallen away from God and become aliens under the wrath of God, they deserved eternal punishment and they became sons of God. 
That is God's original purpose, His plan and redemption. In order for God to carry that plan out, He chose certain people to be brought to that glorious destiny. Certain things had to be done to prepare them for destiny. They were to become holy. They were to become blameless in love. So there was an original purpose, and to bring that purpose to pass, they have to be made holy. And without holiness, they cannot stand before God. This is incredible. It's the most wonderful, glorious thing you've ever looked at in all your life. It has to be astounding. Right here in this text, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, and continuing on, it is so incredible. We are face to face with the most astounding thing that the Almighty God has planned and done for us. If this doesn't excite us and make us delighted, I would really question if one was really, truly a child of God if they didn't get excited about this. Now, another key word that we look at is the word adoption. He predestined us to adoption. Here's where we continue to climb this tremendous mountain with the awesome view. Adoption means to place an adult son in the literal translation of that. Hui Thesia. It's the act of God placing the selected ones that he had planned out to be as adult sons, to have that kind of position, that kind of rank. Paul had to be thinking of the Roman system. and Roman law, they would uh, have adoption. And adoption is secured for the adopted child, a right to the name and to the property of the person by whom he had been adopted. And it also granted the rights of the adopter, all the rights and privileges of the father, as uh, the father adopted uh, this child. It doesn't really deal with the nature here, but upon the legal standing. And so when we see that word adopt, it's really bringing out the forensic term, the, a legal term, uh, the position, the rank, the privileges that one has that's been adopted into this family when they weren't by blood in that family. It's quite a place, quite a status to be that son, to be in that rank and that distinction. Now, we become sons of God and we're introduced into and given the privileges that belong to the very membership of God's family. It's an incredible thought to be brought in to this family. Uh, it's one thing to be forgiven. We thank the Lord that we've been forgiven. We no longer have that guilt that is before us and that we have right standing before God and being justified. And uh, that is an awesome doctrine, to, to be redeemed. But it doesn't stop with that. He puts us into this position as being adopted. One passage that has to stick out is found in Galatians 4 that would be correlated with this thought. as adoption. Sets it up very well, very well, Paul does. Verse 1, he says, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he's a master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. 
Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Go one verse further. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. What a privilege that the adopted sons get. They uh, first start out being adopted, let's say, as a child. And that child is uh, a little different from a servant. He's under servants who might correct him. They would uh, teach him, train him, even discipline him. They would seem to be superior to this child until a certain age. When he would come of age, a declaration is then made concerning his status, his position as being an heir, and he's no more a son than he was before when he was younger, but now he's in a different standing, a different position than he, than he was, even though he was the son of the father of being adopted, but now he had all those privileges that uh, came into place. And uh, what a rank, what a distinction that he had in having that. Now there's uh, another text that deals with adoption that uh, you have to think of found in Romans 8. And as he speaks about adoption, he shows what a privilege that is. Uh, In verse 14 he says, As many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. There's the sons of God thought again. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And to continue on a little bit, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and of children then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. There, found in verse 15, is that we have received the spirit of adoption. We crowd Abba, Daddy, Father. We're joint heirs with Christ. What a position that is. Uh, One has to think about how high of an expression this is. This is how far we have been coming along in the book of Ephesians, seeing the great blessings. And now, one more at the pinnacle here, being a child of God and realizing that we have the very love of God that uh, is just spread out uh, to all of us in a way that is hard to imagine. matter of fact, we can't even really understand what all that means. John, who knew Jesus very well, uh, John was known as the beloved one of Jesus. And he says in 1 John 3, 1, Behold, 
What manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God? We are called children of God. What kind of love is this? What alien, what strange kind of love is this? This is over and beyond. It's outside this universe. This is so different. We can't compare it to anything. What manner of love He has bestowed on us that He has expressed this to us and put us into this high position of being adopted into the family of God, being sons, not just little children, but having full rights to that. If you were to tell this to an unbeliever, they're not going to be moved by it at all. Matter of fact, they're going to see this as rather boring. It's not going to excite them. But how can you not be excited about what God has done with us? Not just saved us and forgiven us, justified us, and all the other things that go along with it, but has brought us all the way to the point of being children of Him, joint heirs with Christ. And we can't even fathom what all that means. But we can say that the privileges are certainly incredible. It makes one shout for joy. And this was all done, not by our doing, but it was all from the Godhead and the purpose and the plan that was established before we were ever born. And it's about His pleasure. It's about His will. All glory to Him, to the praise of the glory of His grace by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. And so when one thinks of predestination and adoption, and then before that, being holy and without blame, before Him in love, we see that it brings us up to this point. And it's about God's plan, His perfect will, making us perfect without blame. One day that will happen, and uh, at that time we'll be glorified. And that is the place where God wants us to be, that we will be. We are holy now, we are blameless now in Christ. We are righteous in Christ, but we wait the fulfillment of this when one day we will see Him as He really is. So when we think about it, we realize that God selected certain from among mankind to be included within the saving work of Christ. And those who were selected, He predestined to be placed as adult sons to be conformed to the very image of His own Son. And we have to think, what a height of glory that we have come to. And so, we concentrate on God's Word and we see the great blessings and it's really all about to the praise of the glory of His grace. And we say, Amen.